Father, we come to you as, as your people and want to say thank you. We know that you are sovereign over history, um, over the good and the bad that you give, you take away. And yet we still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this country, freedoms we're experiencing right now because of the sacrifice that men and women have made uh, for these freedoms. And we thank you for that. We pray that we wouldn't take them for granted, but would use them for the glory of your name and for the advancement of the gospel, not just for our own selfish satisfaction. We also pause and pray, Lord, for those who have experienced um, unthinkable evil this last week and just ask for your comfort and ask for your strength and ask for community and family to gather together and begin the process of healing. We too pray that you would do what only you can do, and that is you would bring good out of evil, and you would bend it to your will, and that you would somehow advance the cause of Christ because of it. We look to you, Lord, in this time of um, change, of uncertainty. Just ask that you be our rock and our foundation, our refuge, our stronghold, our strong, strong tower in these times of trouble. Bless us this morning, Lord, with an understanding of how you made us. I pray that there would be just a sense of humility, hunger, honesty, but truth filled with Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. So like you, I've been reflecting um, this last week. And of course, as we already prayed, pray for the families that uh, went through some and are still going through and will for many years go through a very difficult time of uh, processing. And it's interesting that 10 days before that, um, I didn't know it on a Sunday morning. I, I wasn't aware of the news, but 10 days before that, you know, some grocery shoppers in Buffalo, New York were shot because of the color of their skin. And a month before that, six people died on the streets of Sacramento because of shootings. And people have said this is kind of unprecedented in terms of frequency and even unprecedented in terms of the rest of the countries. And, uh, and as you well know, almost every time this happens, people want to point fingers and find blame and propose solutions. And, and there are always mitigating factors, you know, how, how, how was a child raised? What kind of influences did that child experience? Um, how did law enforcement respond? We as Christians know that the issue goes far deeper, and that is it goes into the human heart, that human heart is sinful and can be dominated by sin in a way that can cause unspeakable things to happen. That is a, it's a problem ultimately with the human heart. And as I've just reflected on not just the shootings, but just everything going on, there's a, the image keeps coming to my mind, and it's a game that I think most of us have played at one point or another, and it's the game of Jenga. Have you ever played Jenga, you know? You know, you get these three blocks, and then on top of those three blocks is another three that lay this way, and there's this nice little tight stack. And the whole point of the game is you start pulling one little Jenga block out at a time to see who can last the longest, and you need to put it on top. So as you play the game, the tower gets taller, but it becomes unstable. It starts to wobble. The internal core integrity of this Jenga tower begins to weaken as it gets taller until the loser picks out the last one and the whole thing implodes, falls to the ground. We play it with two by fours. It's pretty fun. 
You just don't want to be anywhere near it when it crashes, because sometimes it'll get higher than I am tall. That's the image that comes to my mind of where we're at. It's like the world that we live in, our culture in particular, has been taking out jangle blocks, one block at a time. When you exclude our creator, the God who made us, from the equation of life, that's like taking out a foundation block. And then because you take that one out, then how he structured the world, how he structured life in this world, begins to become unstable. So you start to take out other Jenga blocks, like what is marriage? What is family? And pretty soon we don't know those things anymore, and we live in a time where I feel like, yes, the tower has grown tall, but everything's starting to wobble, and at one point does it just crash? Now thankfully, we as believers have a firm foundation. That cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And on him was laid the foundation stones of the apostles and prophets. And insofar as we can remain on that firm foundation, we will be secure as the world around us falls apart. It's interesting, historically speaking, that when Rome, ancient Rome, imploded, at least in the West, the only thing really standing was the church. This morning, we're going to consider another Jenga stone, or Jenga block, if you will. And it is the Jenga block of Gender. Gender. We're going to consider what does the Bible have to say about that. Now, before we get into it, can I just maybe start on a lighter note for a second? Anybody remember watching Kindergarten Cop? <laughs> Came out in 1990. I think you know where I'm going to go with this. but So we watched it back in the 90s, and we thought it would be a good idea to have our kids watch it because the word kindergarten makes it seem so innocent. But we had our little kids, this is a little while ago now, it's like early 2000s. We turned on kindergarten cop for our kids and realized, wow, there's a lot more language than I remember. And the subject matter, there's some violence in there and we had to fast forward through some parts. Uh, if you've never seen the movie, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger's the main person. He's a cop and he goes undercover and he goes under the cover of a kindergarten teacher. And the kind of the humorous irony in it is that is that while he could take down bad guys all day long, in a class of kindergartens, he was completely overrun. But he try, try, finally tries to figure out how, to, or he figures out how to organize and lead these little kids. And there's this one scene that nobody ever forgets in that movie. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to actually say the words. I'm not going to have you say the words. But this little boy, kindergartner, stands up, and he says, boys have a, starts with a P, and girls have a, Starts with the V. Kindergartner understands that gender is tied to biology, <laughs> the parts that we have. That was 1990, that was 32 years ago. It's different today. Now, what a kindergartner said in 1990 on a show, people with PhDs can't answer, refusing to answer the question, what is a woman. That's where we're at. How are we to understand this? Now, before I launch into it, as I've done in other times, let me just say I know this is sensitive for some families. Some families probably have sons, daughters who are struggling with this. That gender is no longer what they call binary, one or the other. It's now more fluid. And sometimes it can flex in and out. We're at a time where some people would say there are seven or eight genders that are possible. 
agender, cisgender, transgender, gender fluid, gender queer, intersex, gender non-conforming. Others think there's as much as 72 different genders. Like I said, this is a sensitive topic, and I hope I deal with it sensitively. But we as Christians have to know what the Bible teaches about it, because we believe it's God's word, it's his revelation. He's the one who established the whole Jenga tower, and he's at the bottom of it, and his word's at the bottom of it. I think it's important also to remember that, well, let me say this too, if you happen to be a person who is moving in a non-binary direction, this is not meant to judge or condemn you. It's simply to lay out what the Bible teaches. We will love you no matter what. You're created in the image of God. I think we do well to remember too that the gospel itself is not coercive. It doesn't force you to be something. The gospel appeals to the will. It's winsome. It wants you to make the free and willing choice. That's the good news. It's not coercive. It calls you. It changes you from the inside out so that you want to do what's right. So it's not coercive. We need to remember that. I also think it's important to recognize that we have cultural understandings that don't originate from the Bible as to what constitutes masculinity and femininity. So and if, I, if I'm outside the boundaries here, I hope you'll be indulgent and gracious with me on this. But sometimes it's like, hey, if you're a real man, you don't sing, you don't dance, you don't wear pink. You got to drive a truck, you got to drink beer, you have to shoot pigs, and you have to watch football. Like, that's kind of the cultural shape. And unfortunately, that shapes how people see masculinity and femininity. So, or to be a real woman, you've got to wear pink. You've got to, in the old days, throw Tupperware parties or maybe pampered chef parties. <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying that's what makes a woman a woman. Heaven forbid you should play rugby. You see, we have cultural Embed, like embedded in our culture, we have notions of masculinity and femininity. And even then, we have to come to the Bible and go, wait a second, what does this mean? Is that what a real man is? A truck driving, beer drinking man? Hmm. You've got to be careful. So with that said, let me just lay it out. Because I think it's fairly obvious in the scripture, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on what the Bible teaches about gender. But I will. Um, talk about it. That'll be one, just the Bible and gender. Then I want to talk about what's underneath it, nam namely the center of one's identity. We touched on it last week, but it needs more time. Then sovereignty and identity, and we're going to include with some application. And I hope you'll just hear me out. And if what I say isn't biblical, toss it away. If it's biblical, then it's between you and God, not you and me. So first, Bible and gender. Number one, and we touched on this last week as part of the who we are as sexual beings, gender is from the very beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it is tied to biology. Now, there's more to being male and female than, than biology. God equipped us emotionally and psychologically to also be male and female. But it's never divorced from how you were made physically. When God, in the very beginning, made Adam and Eve, of course, we read this last week, he made them male and female. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. It's really clear that the biological function of male and female is to replicate, to fill the earth. It's tied to biology. I think most of us know that. The kindergartner knew it. Boys have a, and girls have a, 
That is, from the beginning, how the Bible understands or gender. It's, it's tied to our biology, how we were made. That was true also, by the way, of the animals. When Noah was told, hey, you got to take the famous story, you got to take the animals two by two into the ark. He was, it was very explicit. It's like, you got to have a male and you got to have a female. Otherwise, that particular species goes extinct. Again, biology. He was instructed male and female animals to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. That is the function and purpose of gender is to replicate and continue the species. So it's tied to biology. It's never divorced from it ever in the scripture. That's just, I don't know how more clearly to say it. You'll never find it. Two, this is very interesting. Is gender is actually preordained by God. Before you're ever conceived, God shows you to be male or female. On a number of occasions, we find that explicit in the text of Scripture. So, for example, we have Isaac. Before he was ever conceived in Genesis, he told Sarah, you're going to have a son. Male. It's going to be a son. Gender was preordained by God. It was a choice. Same thing with Samson in the book of Judges. Samuel, 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 11 and 17. And, of course, John the Baptist. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a prophet. Gender was preordained. And, of course, uniquely and climactically, Jesus Christ. And behold, we know this from Luke chapter 131. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And I think this is, this is true of all people. God chose you to be this way before you were ever conceived. It was his choice. It's not my choice. It was his choice to make you the way you're made. Three, that gender tied to biology is preserved through all of life to the very end. So it was ordained, preordained that Jesus be a male. When he was conceived, he was a male. When he went through the gestation period, he was a male. When he was a born, born, he became a son. He lived life as a male. He sacrificed his life on the cross as a male. He died as a man. From beginning to end, it never changed. It's sustained through all of life in the Bible. It never changes, not once. So the whole idea of fluidity is just completely and utterly absent in the Scripture. Now, of course, we know that sin has contaminated gender, our understanding of it, but this still remains the pattern, the truth, the design. And this last one, this is the fourth little point here. When Jesus rose from the dead, came out of the tomb, he wasn't raised in an androgynous body. In other words, without gender. He was raised as he died, a man, a male. He was raised incorruptible, and it still had his, his gender. When Mary Magdalene in the book of John saw him, she saw a man. He saw, she saw a gardener, which in Greek is it, there's, it's masculine. He's referred to repeatedly after his resurrection as a he or a him. It never changes. Even in the book of Revelation and all the scenes of him being up in heaven, he's referred to as the sun. Never changes. Now, that tells us this, 
gender is retained in the new creation. In other words, it's eternally fixed. You're never going to get away from it. I'm going to die a man. I'm coming back as a man. I'm sorry if you don't like me as a man. I'm, I'm, you're stuck with me that way. And you're stuck that way. And it's not stuck. It was beautiful in the original design. It still is beautiful. And one day it will be restored. So for these reasons, to me, the Bible just simply teaches there are two genders. You're either male or female. He's ordained you that way, created you that way, and you're going to be that way for all eternity. Simply laid out. You really can't make a case otherwise, from the Bible at least. So I want you to think about these points yourself and ask yourself the question, is this what the Bible teaches or not? And if it is, and you don't like it, you got to wrestle with the Lord on this. Not me. Wrestle with him on it. So let's take it to set number two. Underneath this whole controversy that wants us to see gender differently, that it's not, as the kindergartner said, you know, boys have a and girls have a, but it can be fluid and change. What's driving? What's underneath this? And, and to me, it always comes down to the search for identity. It's to find something central. Now, when you think of identity, you know, if you haven't gotten one yet, you're going to have to get a real ID someday. I finally got mine. I spent a, a time of luxury and respite down at the DMV. <laughs> Wonderful. It's a real ID. Like, it's just not a license anymore or an ID. It's got to be a real ID because they got to know this is really you. So on my real ID, there's my name, full name, Daniel Lawrence Deckard. Tells me where I live, when I was born. Says I was a veteran, or am. My sex is male, M. Apparently, you can opt not to be binary anymore, which kind of defeats the purpose of an identification card. But height, 6'3", hair, I used to say red. <laughs> That's just this B-A-L for bald. <laughs> Wait, 210, maybe. <laughs> Blue eyes. And like, this is like, this is the government's way of saying this is who I am. This is my identity to them. You and I both know that identity goes way down deeper than that. It's who you really are. Or who you think you really are. And how do we arrive at the answer of who am I really? Now, there really are only two options upon which to base one's identity. The creator or creation. And the creation's broken. It's frustrated. It's subject to bondage. It's either found in God or on this transient world of earth. And the clearest place, in, in other words, there's, that we can... There's two selves, so to speak, in the scripture. There's the old self, dominated by the bondage of sin and so forth, and the possibility of a new self that's been recreated because of the gospel. The first self, or the old self, the old identity, again, kind of clearly laid out in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, he's speaking to believers, people who know Jesus, to the church. Like I'm speaking to you now, only his teaching is infallible, as mine is not. 
He says, now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, Gentiles just is code for unbelievers, people who are lost. People are searching for an old identity or identity in this fallen world. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and given themselves to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. So this is how he defines the old world, the old self, the old identity. Their minds are futile. They think futile thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, which means they're lost. They can't see. They're morally blind. They have hard hearts. There's no, there's, there, it's impervious to truth. They don't want to hear it. They want to live how they want to live, and they practice all kinds of impurity. They're practicing it because they think there's life in it. If you think of the human soul and picture it with a temple at the center, like imagine almost like a physical temple at the center of the soul. Every human has one. Every human has a temple, a sacred core. And every human has something in it or is looking for something to fill it with to arrive and and to know this is who I am, this temple inside. All of these things are lost ways of trying to find something for that temple inside. And when it doesn't fit, then we try something different, or we become something different, or we pursue something different. And it becomes an endless cycle of trying to find yourself through created things by putting them in this temple. But it just doesn't work. Because Pascal said this three, four centuries ago, 1700s. He was a mathematician, philosopher, and a Christian. He said that in every human being, there's a God-shaped vacuum. It's shaped for him and him alone, and you can't fill it with anything else. You were made for him. 16 centuries ago, St. Augustine said this very famous quote of his. He says, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. The old fallen self wants to find identity in created things, in pleasures, in power, in any number of ways. The person who's looking for themselves in an identity tied to gender, trying to put the wrong thing in the temple. But there is a new self that God grants people through the gospel, a new sense of belonging, a new place, a new center. And Paul continues on to talk about that. In the same context, he talks about the old self. Now he's talking about the new He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, that's your old identity, it's gone. Don't live it anymore, don't claim it anymore, don't live in it anymore, and is corrupt through through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, something happened along the way between the old self and the new self, and that's in verse 20. They, 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 they encountered Jesus, teaching of Jesus, the good news, the gospel, the message of Jesus, assuming you have heard about him, were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. 
And it changed everything. He established a, a new real ID. It's not what the government says of you. It's not what other people say, say of you. It's who you are now because of what Jesus has done and who you are in him. And the new life he's given to you. That is to say, Jesus reestablishes God as the center of the temple inside. Part of the outworking of the gospel and central to it is the idea that the spirit of the living God comes into your soul. It doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin anymore, but it does mean you have a new self and a new desire. Now you want to do what he wants you to do. Or if I may jump to a different text where Paul talks about his, I'm going to call it used identity language, his new identity. Um, you'll notice the first part of this Philippians section talks about things that people often build their sense of self or who am I on. Talks about his own life. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That is, he's a Jewish boy. Of the people of Israel, that's his nationality or his ethnicity. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, and there's almost flawless performance. Uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here he's like, these are the things that typically people say, this is who I am. This is my ethnicity. I'm an Israeli. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. In terms of Passion, I'm zealous. In terms of performance, I, I, I did everything possible I could do. That typically is what people put in the temple here. This is who I am, these list of things. And at some point in Paul's former life, this probably was his identity. This is who I am. And yet, when he came to Christ, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he went to Damascus, everything changed. Those old things were displaced by something much better. So he goes on from here, and he talks about those same things upon which his old identity rested. And he says, but whatever gain I had, past tense, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. It's not that he wasn't still an Israelite. It wasn't that he ceased to be from the tribe of Benjamin, or that he ceased to be passionate. It's just that those things weren't central anymore. Jesus decentralized all those things, and he took the center. And when Jesus is the center, he's in the temple here, in our heart. Like, the most important thing to me is Jesus. Everything else falls in line, like gender. It's not as important as it once was. Now, gender is massively important to the Bible, but it's not central. And it doesn't, at the deepest level, define who you are. It is actually Christ in you. And you in Christ that defines who you are. You see, to build an identity on anything other than Christ is to like look for water in the desert. You're just not going to find it. He is the truth. He is the water of life. He is the vine. We are the branches. So the center of identity for the Christian has to be Christ. Then everything else falls into place. Marriage, family, so forth. None of those things can be in the temple. Which brings us to the third part. Sovereignty and identity. Sovereignty and identity. Now, some of you, have, I've said this before, but I don't go to the doctor a lot, but I do go to the dermatologist six, every six months because I'm Swedish, Norwegian, English, Scottish, pretty much as pure white as you can get and subject to sun and skin disease. And years of doing swim team with no 
well, it wasn't suntan lotion back then. <laughs> it was sunscreen now, suntan lotion. Um, anyway, so, so she's great. And usually when I go in, she's like, yep, you got a few spots. I'm always nervous when I go in because she always finds something. I'd rather not go at all. But this last time, I went just a couple weeks ago, and, and for the first time in a long time, she said, looks good. I'm like, that's awesome. Because last time I went, I had to have a big chunk taken out of my arm. Now, here's the thing. I trust my dermatologist. And what I trust about her is that she actually knows my skin better than I know my skin. I mean, I live with my skin, but she knows skin. She went to school to study skin. In her experience, she's seen lots and lots and lots of skin. So when she says, hey, we have a spot there, and I'm like, that doesn't look like a spot to me. She's like, no, it's a spot. I have a choice. Do I trust the fact that she knows more about my skin than I do? Or do I know more about my skin than she does? Well, I, okay, I trust you. I trust that you're cutting stuff off of me because you actually care about my well-being. You don't just enjoy cutting stuff off of me. Because I trust her knowledge of my skin, and therefore I submit to her leadership in that area of my life. The question is, who do you trust to define who you are? Do you trust the God who knit you together in the womb, who ordained a gender for you, who loved you enough to die for you? Do you trust that he knows you better than you know you? And if that's the case, then in terms of all of this stuff, I, we surrender in trust to who you know me to be. As, to who, as opposed to who I want myself to be. That is, really, we're left with two options here in this culture. We either surrender and trust to the fact that God made me the way I am, or we decide I know better than the one who created me, and I will determine who I am. The first puts God on the throne. The second puts me on the throne. Am I really smart enough, wise enough, powerful enough to be my own authority or you? It really boils down to that. We live in a very self-determined culture. I have the right to determine who I am. Okay. Or we can surrender and trust and go, God, I trust you the way you created me to be. And with Jesus at the center, honestly, we can accept those things because they're not central anymore. So let me conclude with a couple of application points, and then we get to take the Lord's Supper together. Some of these are obvious. Out of the previous points, just simply accept who God created and redeemed you to be. Don't give in to the temptation to start removing the Jenga blocks from your life everything will start to wobble. Let them be. Trust him. He created you a particular way and he redeemed you and someday you're going to be resurrected a particular way. And not just as individuals, but I'm speaking more broadly to us as a community of faith. We want to hold these things true for each other's sake. We need to make sure that we are 
keeping the Jenga box in place in our church, in our church family. Because there are some strong waves pounding against the community of faith, against Christianity. And it's, they want us to pull out the blocks with them. And I'm saying we can't do that as a community, not just as individuals, but as a community. Let's keep those blocks in place by faith in the grace of God because we love him, trust him. Second, and this kind of wraps back at the beginning, resist being pigeonholed by cultural understandings of gender. Listen, if you're a guy who likes to sing, play music, paint, bake cookies, most of those things I like to do, what does that make me? Well, it makes me me. Still a guy. Bake away. You know, if you happen to be a person who likes driving trucks and backpacking without showers for five days, I like those things too. Not so much the showering part. Hey, be you, because God gave you those preferences, those unique things. That doesn't make you a man or a woman. It just makes you you. I mean, King David danced, sang, wrote poetry. In our culture, he'd be judged a bit feminine. And yet he killed Goliath. He was a warrior and a king. Jesus sang hymns. He was a singer. Yet he conquered the powers of hell. If you're a woman who likes to play rugby, likes backpacking, things that our culture would say are more on the masculine side, maybe. Be you. And if you like to wear pink, you like to wear dresses, be you. And there's a story of a woman in the Old Testament. Her name is Jael in the book of Judges. She knew how to cook. But when an enemy of God came into her tent, she took a tent peg and she pounded it through a skull. A warrior when she needed to be. All that to say, don't let cultural ideas of masculinity and femininity confuse who you are. Just be you and your preferences and likes, but retain the way God made you to be. And last but not least, and I've, this is a repetition, in terms of engaging in the outside world, again, we engage the world through love and gospel. The only thing that can change someone from the inside out so that they want to follow Christ in every way he teaches is by having a changed heart through the gospel, to love our neighbors who may be struggling with gender identity, to make sure they know you love them. And when given an opportunity, we have to be able to say, there's somebody so much better in life, and that's Jesus. He died for you, and he loves you. And to watch that kind of change. It's changed people for thousands of generations. It continues to be the most powerful thing we have, this thing called the gospel. I played the what-if game this last week. And what-ifs, when it comes to past, um, can't change history. But it can change how you approach the future. And I ask myself this question, what if a Christian neighbor who lived next door to Salvador Ramos, the shooter in Texas, even his name is an irony. His first name, Salvador, means savior. But this last week, he wasn't a savior. He was a destroyer. What if a Christian next door said, 
there's a young teen I want to invest in. I'm going to invite him to my youth group. I'm going to invite him to youth camp. And what if Salvador Ramos heard a message about how God loves broken people in a broken world, and he surrendered his life to Jesus and was changed? We'd be in a very different place today because of the power of the gospel. And you and me, as Christians, we have the message that has that kind of power to change a life and change the future. That's one of the most important things we can do. Love people, and when given the opportunity, you, you share the message that changes the heart. We're not in charge of changing the heart. We're in charge of delivering the message, but God changes the heart. With that said, I, we thought it appropriate to um, take communion together. And as you do, and again, this is a representation of the body and the blood of Jesus offered for you. Don't tune me out here. I want you to think about this for a second. Think about who you are now because of what happened that this table represents. You, if you're a believer, are forgiven fully and completely. In taking the elements, remember how good Jesus is to you to offer his own life for the sake of broken people like me and like you. If you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to come. If you're not, we just ask you kindly stay where you're at. This is, a, this is a, an act of faith, uh, of belief. Um, I'm going to pray, and if I could have the, those who are serving communion come forward. And when I finish, feel free to come forward. Probably, let me tell you this, it's been a little confusing. Let's do two lines and two lines here um, so that we don't have traffic jams, which we're probably going to have anyway, but let's pray. Father, I thank you for, for who you are to us. I, I thank you for your church people that you love. You love these people way more than I do. And we pray that you would um, just remind us of how much you love us through the bread and through the cup, the body and the blood of Christ. Remind us of who we are, how much we're loved, and help us to return your love in loving you and surrendering ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen.